that what is said today is very needed in all evangelical churches and in our church because I think that often our methods of evangelism are hindered because we doubt the power of God and we often, as I've entitled this, give people up as lost causes. Sometimes we give them up as a lost cause at first glance. We look at them, we size them up, and either through fear or judgmental attitudes, we write them off and we leave them in the state that we encountered them. Or on the other end, we may be family members or friends who have spent a lot of time with a person. And that person seems to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. And we watch them sort of spiraling downward. And we finally get to the point when they seem to be calloused, or hardened, or enslaved. And we kind of say, I'm done with that. I've put all the energy, or all the time, or all the effort, or whatever it is we want to say, into that person, and we write them off as a lost cause. In the story that we're going to encounter today, you have folks coming from both perspectives. You have Jesus and a boat full of disciples who are going to size this guy up, Instantly, first time, meet him. And I'm wondering what the disciples are thinking during the process. And then you've got a whole town full of people and a region full of people who probably have heard about this guy and have written him off either through experience of trying to be the one who bound him with chains or held him in check or whatever it was that was done. And so you've got both groups of people coming in. But I also believe that there is a word here for you if you think that you're a lost cause. If you've been wrestling and struggling and failing, and it seems that the harder you try, the more challenged you become, and you're maybe at the breaking point of considering yourself. A lost cause. So I think the audience of the church, the audience of those who have experienced, and the audience of the individual are all targets of what God is saying in His Word today to us. So I want us to drink this in and consider it. Maybe you're one of those people who fits all three of those You're part of the church, you've judged others or yourself as lost causes, and you're at the place in your own life of maybe giving up. Jesus steps into such a place. Now, it's important for us to put it in the context that it belongs, because in Jesus, God is doing what we most need. If we roll through our outline here, go ahead, Robin, to the next 
one of the things that we have to put into context every time that we read the scriptures is, is that God is making himself known. We have the privilege of having a Bible. This past trip to Ecuador, we were able to give Bibles, about 315 of them away to children and to some adults. And to have a child come back on the next day and in class after having the Bible one day say, I'm on page 90. And to go, whoa, he took this Bible home and he stayed up into the evening and he read. And to know that we have the privilege of having a Bible, having God reveal himself to us, the greatest need of any human being is to know God. And God has made himself known through creation, testifying of his glory, through our conscience, our knowledge of good and evil that's fundamental in being wired and created in the image of God. God has made himself known through his word and through Christ and through the church. And he wants us to know him accurately and personally and savingly and intimately and eternally. And so when we are given these stories, there are stories in which God is speaking to us and revealing himself to us. That we may know what he is like. That we may be conformed to his image and be like him through salvation. And that we may show others what he is like. So the story, number one, Jesus' encounter with the lost cause follows a miraculous revelation. Leading up to this moment, something has happened. Jesus has calmed the sea. They set out going across the sea. The storm came up. We spoke of this last week and the men became so afraid that trembling, they woke Jesus up. And I shared with you that when when grown men get to the place where they're waking other grown men up because they're so afraid, they're really scared. And Jesus speaks to the wind and the sea. He calms them. And if you look at the end of chapter 4 at the very last Verse, you have this revelation that has occurred and the disciples are wondering in verse 41 of Mark chapter 4. And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So God is revealing himself in Christ. He's revealing his reign, his sovereignty over the whole created realm, something that Jesus will sum up in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He is sovereign and ruling over the whole of nature and the whole of heaven. And so, there's sort of a background When the disciples arrive on the shore of this region. The background is is that Jesus has just made himself known in a very particular way. As the Lord of the natural creation. And so he's given them reason for their faith to increase. Their trust to grow. And they land in this strange land. Now that moves us to number two. Jesus' encounter with the lost cause, occurs in an unusual location. 
If you've ever studied this region, you'll find out that where they've gone is to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. That southeast corner was inhabited by people who had been influenced greatly by the Greek and Roman and pagan religions. So much so that it had become a region known for its Gentile influence where you would have someone comfortably raising a herd of 2,000 pigs. Now that would be an anomaly anywhere else in Israel because they were forbidden not only for consumption, but even for raising and for touching. And so you have uh, an area that's accustomed to a life apart from God. You have a people there that are accustomed to a life apart from God. And so this very unusual location, Jesus takes them right to the spot. Now, there are several things we can learn from this unusual location. First is that Jesus will meet you where you are. This is some good news. He's not asking for the lost sinner to travel across the sea to find him. That lost sinner is not going to be looking for Jesus. But listen, Jesus is looking for lost sinners. And he is willing to travel to where you are. He is willing to come and meet you at the place that you find yourself in your lostness, in your desperation, in your sorrow, in your anguish, in your crisis. Christ is willing to condescend, to step out of heaven in all of His glory, put on flesh and blood, and come and meet us right where we are. Now this is really good news for sinners like myself. And I hope you see it as good news for sinners like yourself. He is willing to come and to meet us where we are. Even if we're dwelling in a strange land, very separated from Him, and captured by our own sin and the work of the devil. Jesus cuts a straight path to this man. Now, the unusualness of the location is not just an encouragement to you that he would come and meet you. It's also a demonstration to the church of how we ought to be living. The church cannot survive and thrive with a y'all come mentality. The church must be driven by a let's go mentality. We have to be willing to step out of the comfort of our familiar lands. Whether that familiar land is right here where we're all pretty comfortable, climate controlled and things pretty much like we like them, or our own homes where we are secure and safe and free from all of the worries of the world, The Bible is very clear that when Jesus takes his disciples to carry out the mission of the church, that he takes them to unusual places. Places that they're not familiar with, they're not comfortable with. And on the way, they encountered a lot of fear 
and danger. Remember that the context of this story is crossing the sea and the wind and the waves beginning to sink the boat and the disciples crying out with fear and waking Jesus up and even saying to Him, Don't you care that we perish? But they were headed straight to the mission that Jesus had for them. I'm afraid that this is where a lot of folks kind of part with the church's mission. If we can kind of somehow build a ministry that will be so attractive that we really don't have to go into the highways and byways, into the hedges, into the dark places, into the difficult areas. If we could just build a ministry where it's a y'all come, we'd be very comfortable. But that is not what Jesus does. Jesus packs His team up and takes them to an unusual, uncomfortable place. Where Christ is not known, God is not worshipped, good is not served, and open evil is the character of the place. He's giving us a picture of the life of missions that the whole church is called to. So that we would break out of our comfort and into the areas where the lost, the broken are. Jesus compels and takes His disciples to go where the need is. So I want to to challenge you for a moment to ask, is that happening in your life? Are you following Jesus' compulsion and command to go Where the need is. Now sometimes that need is in your own home. But many of us will work to not spend much time there because of the work and effort necessary to lead well. The very first mission field, and we're going to find out at the end of this whole story, is the home. The familiar land. And we have to be good at that. And sometimes we're not just compelled to go home, we're compelled to go to the neighbors who watch us live our lives daily, our co-workers who've seen what we're like on the job, and then to the nations to make sure that the gospel gets to every person on earth. And so, Jesus' encounter with the lost cause occurs in an unusual location. I believe that God is calling the church to be in unusual locations. The places that other folks may have written off, given up on. Who would imagine that Jesus' ministry would take him away from the land which was familiar, the synagogues, the teaching, the temple, familiar with the things of God, and go into a land so unfamiliar that the breaking of God's law and commands was just openly practiced. That takes us to number three. Jesus' encounter with the lost cause reveals the man's helpless condition. One of the reasons I believe we're struggling with evangelism within the church, the church, the Christian church universal, when we talk about unreached people groups and there being more than 3 billion people inside of unreached people groups, 
I believe it's because our theology of salvation has been tainted. This is important. Somehow we have thought that some people are more savable than others. And that is because we have failed to understand the nature of salvation. The salvation is not good to great, okay to better. Salvation is dead to living. And no one person is more dead than another. You can't go to the cemetery and start going, well, which one of the folks here are the most dead? Let's go to them first or last. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, That the state of a human being separated from God by their sin is called dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. I believe somehow in North American doctrinal studies and experiences, we've gotten to the place where we can size somebody up and say, I think they would be easier to reach than they would. Forgetting that either of them are saved by the same power and message. And no one person is less savable or more savable because those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are dead. And unless there is a miraculous, supernatural birth, John 3 tells us of that miracle of being born again. Unless what happens in Ephesians chapter 2 is happening in their life where it says, but you were made alive with Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit to bring regeneration into the heart of a human being is the same regardless of how dead they are in their trespasses and sins. And I believe we've become guilty of sizing up our evangelism. And staying away from the darkest corners of our own cities, our own neighborhoods, and our world. And we have written off men and women and boys and girls and consigned them to hell because of how we saw them in their deadness. Jesus erases all of that. And He packs His missionary force. The eleven who would change the world came twelve later. And He shows them what it is like to see the power of God in a hopeless, lost cause. And so, Jesus' encounter reveals the man's helpless condition. Listen to his description of this man. Verse 3. 
He had his dwelling among the tombs. Listen, if you found a guy living inside of one of the clo- uh, the, the kind of above ground enclosures that we have across the street over here at the cemetery. If you found a guy living in that, I believe you, like me, may be very prone to write him off. We would say, that guy, that guy, they're crazy, man. Says that he was having his dwelling among the tombs. No one was able to bind him anymore. Whatever authorities from the Romans, whatever authorities from the Jews, whatever authorities from the town had lost the ability to imprison this guy, he would break out of chains. He was absolutely overwhelmed with the power of the devil. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Can't you see Jesus saying, here's where we're going, guys. We're going to pick the worst guy on earth to show you the power of God. And so he goes straight to this guy. Look at what else it says about him. Verse 5, constantly night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. So this guy's cutting himself to either experience or to see the blood. He is crying out. He's spending his night screaming either in agony or in craziness. And nobody thinks this guy has any hope whatsoever except Jesus. And so Jesus plots his course straight for This man. The truth is, if we were honest, we would have done anything we could to avoid an encounter with this guy. We would have tried to drive around him, get around him, don't make eye contact with him, don't look at him. He may come over and talk to us. You know what I'm talking about. And we so quickly judge and write off as if some people are more spiritually dead than others so that there are certain ones so spiritually dead that we think even God can't help them. And we leave them to die in their sin. But Jesus is not like that. Even in His helpless condition, I put into your outline... The beautiful words of Horatio Spafford, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. Isn't this the glory of this moment? That Christ regarded this man's helpless estate. When everyone else had written him off, everyone else was done, everyone else was over, everyone else was through, Jesus went straight for him. And he took his disciples with him to see it. This man's self-destruction is obvious. But Jesus' ability recounted in All of the New Testament, but so gloriously, 
in Ephesians 2. Let me just read this wonderful work in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked in according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we have here this beautiful picture of a dead man about to be made alive by the power of God exerted through the person of Jesus in his life. And so, number four. Jesus' encounter with the lost cause leads to the man's glorious salvation. Verse 6, And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding on the mountain. And the demons entreated him saying, send us into the swines, we may enter them. And he gave them permission and coming out the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. You see the self-destructiveness of darkness and evil. Satan's workers, his laborers, his demons, they're bent on nothing but destruction. And when they enter into this herd, self-destruction is almost immediate as the herd simply suicidally runs itself into the sea. Jesus is encountering the forces of evil, exerting their power, their influence, their inhabiting of a human being. But in the face of Jesus and His words and His power, they must obey. And He dispatches them out of the man and sets the man free to do what it seems He was seeking to do initially and that was come and bow down before Jesus. 
This is such a miraculous, mind-blowing thing that the people are filled with such amazement that it scares them and makes them so afraid of Jesus that they want Him to depart, to get away. This is the story of all salvation. It is someone who has the power to break the power that we are under in our sin. It is someone who has the power to break the influence, to break the domination, to break the kingdom of evil. And in wrecking that kingdom, adopting us into His own kingdom, And giving us life. This is the miracle of Jesus. There is no power. No force. No ability in this universe that can resist His miraculous power. And the church needs to embrace this with such confidence when we share the gospel. Because we're not sharing our power. We're sharing His power. The Bible says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the glory of Jesus' power. The power of salvation. Glorious, wonderful, setting this man free and giving him life instead of death. It's awesome. I can... Imagine what the disciples were like after this moment. They make headway straight into a land of godlessness, encounter the very first thing, a crazed lunatic of a guy running up to them, scarred, who knows if he was presently bleeding, crazed, living in the tombs, totally naked, and he's standing there, falling at Jesus' feet, and the disciples are probably looking at each other going, wonder what's coming next. And Jesus, with His power, saves this man. Restores him. In fact, his mind comes back and is restored. He is clothed again. And the people from the town come to see. Look in verse 14. And their herdsmen ran away. And in the city reported it. And out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon possessed. Sitting down. Clothed. And in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. This was astonishing. And Jesus was displaying what he can do. Through the gospel message. Listen. My brothers and sisters. 
There is no dark region in our town, no dark region in any of our homes, no dark region in our neighborhoods, no dark region in any of our country, in any of our world, that Jesus cannot penetrate and bring life. The church has to regain her confidence in the power of the gospel message because it is the power of God Himself Unto salvation. Jesus saves. And there is no one. Beyond. That power. So something strange happens in the end. Number five. Jesus' encounter with the lost cause. Concludes. With the man's surprising. Commission. Jesus commissions him to be a missionary. I think this through. A couple of hours ago, he was living in tombs, cutting himself, destroying his life, a mind crazed. And now, by the power of Jesus, his mind is clear, his heart is new, his life is changed, the new birth has come, and he so in his heart wants to do what he seemed to want to do in the beginning because he came running to Jesus and fell at his feet. And now he wants to get back in the boat with Jesus because the townspeople are saying, you guys got to get out of here, man. We don't want any part of what's going on with you. And he wants to get in the boat and be one of those disciples and go back across into the land where they're going to do the rest to their ministry and Jesus says no no and right there and right then Jesus commissions him listen to his words and as he was getting into the boat verse 18 the man who had been demon possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him and he did not let him but he said to him go home please hear those words If you are a person who has been set free by Jesus, the first place you need to live this out is in your home. Because they know what you were like. Others don't. They know what you were like. Go home. Husband, go home and love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, go home and live out the life of the bride of Christ. Children, go home and obey your parents in the Lord. Estranged people, go home and make up. If you want your family to come to Christ, you don't need to go on the mission field. You need to go home to your field. And give them a clear picture of the great things God has done for you. He lays out to him. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And so he sends them back home to his own people to report This is the first testimony of the church. The first testimony of the church is to go home changed and to live it out under the privacy of our own roof.
and let our families see how great God is. He gives him a commission and he just gives him two things to do. People struggle with evangelism. Here's two things everybody can do without an ounce of training. Two things. What does he say? He says, first, what great things the Lord has done for you. This guy had not even yet known about the crucifixion. It hadn't happened. He just knew there was a man named Jesus who could do what nobody else could do. You know more than that. You know that the Lord of glory has done something for you. What great things has the Lord done for you? He sent Jesus Christ to come looking for you. Born of the Virgin Mary, lived this gloriously perfect, sinless life the way you should have, but never have. Died this glorious substitutionary death. He was my substitute, was raised from the dead. God's verdict of this guilt has been erased. Ascended to the right hand of God, sits now and prays for us, intercedes for us. If that's not enough to tell everybody, then you've missed the good story. The great things that God has done for you. The good news of Jesus coming to rescue you. But notice the next line. Here's the second line. How He has had mercy on you. You see, in doing all of that, He was pouring His mercy on you rather than His judgment. Jesus said it. I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through me the world might be saved. That's the work of Jesus. So right now, every one of us can go home to our people. And we can tell What great things the Lord has done for us. How He's had mercy. But don't miss the last line. Verse 20. He obeyed. It says, And He went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis. What's that mean? He became a ten city missionary. A ten city missionary. The Decapolis were the ten cities that sort of fit together as a region recognized by the Roman Empire, sort of as in solidarity with each other. He became a ten-city missionary because he met Jesus. He started in his own hometown and he worked through the ten cities. He proclaimed through the region. Look at what it says there. It says, what did he do? He proclaimed in Decapolis what great things the Lord had done for him. And what's the end of it? Everyone marveled. When we take home the change that Jesus makes in us, people will marvel over it. They will say, wow, what a change! This is our mission. Some of you are here today and, well, you've written yourself off. I want you to know Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. And there is no power of hell that has authority over you that Jesus cannot overcome. Some of you have written off people you've had long-term relationships with. And you've had enough and you've written them off. And to you, they're done. 
But Jesus is beckoning us to not give up and to trust the power of the gospel message. Others of us have left regions of the world, regions of our neighborhood, regions of our own town untouched with the gospel because we've written off different kinds of people because we're scared. Jesus teaches us that's not how the church is to be. So I'm going to ask you for three commitments today. First commitment, don't write yourself off. Whatever you're in, Jesus is greater than it and He can deliver you. Second, don't write people that you know off. Pray and give the gospel. Third, stop writing people off at first glance or first look. No one is more dead than another. All who are apart from Christ are dead and they need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that God seems to dispense through the proclamation of the gospel. So I'm asking you for those commitments. Some of you are here today and you need an encounter with Jesus to save you. Would you bow with me? That you would receive Him today and know that He is calling you away from your sin. And calling you into a relationship with Him where He washes you, saves you, forgives you, cleanses you, gives you a new heart, a new life, and a new mission. The mission to go and share with others what great things He did for you. When He died on the cross for your sins. Would you receive Him today? Would you turn and trust and believe? And have the power of God overcome the power of evil in your life? Would you be able to leave here today saying, God has had mercy on me? Would you receive Him by trusting in Jesus today? By calling upon Him in faith. Repenting, turning away from your sin and following Jesus. Would you do that today? Pray with me if you would. God in heaven, far too long I've been under the influence of my own flesh, this world, and the devil. I'm fed up with that. I'm guilty of it. And I confess to you, I need you. Today, I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that He lived perfectly as a substitute in life. That He died sacrificially as a substitute in death. I believe He was raised from the dead. And that He sits at your right hand interceding even now for your children. I believe this. Forgive me of my sins. Take me into your family. Make me your child. I pray this in Jesus' name. As God works in your heart today, would you respond? Would you stand? Would you come?